What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. Good evening and welcome to MSNBC's continuing special coverage of the special counsel's indictment of Donald J. Trump. I'm Alex Wagner and I'm joined here by my colleagues Ari Melver, Joy Reid, Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell. For the first time in our nation's history, the federal government has charged a former president with multiple crimes. And for the first time since this investigation began, America heard directly from the man in charge, special counsel Jack Smith. Today, an indictment was unsealed charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. The 38-count indictment against Trump and his personal valet and now co-defendant Walt Nauda accuses the former president specifically of 31 counts of willful retention of national defense information, three counts of withholding or concealing documents in a federal investigation, two counts of false statements, and one count of conspiracy to obstruct justice. According to the indictment, the classified documents Trump stored in his boxes included information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. The indictment paints a vivid and damning picture of how a former president handled some of our nation's most closely held secrets. He kept them in a ballroom. He kept them in a bathroom and a shower. He kept them in an unsecured storage room, all within the reach of many members of this private club that the government says hosted events for tens of thousands of members and guests during that time. At one point, a Trump employee found the contents of several boxes spilled across the floor for anyone to see. But Trump didn't just unlawfully retain these documents. According to the indictment, after the FBI ordered the return of all of this classified information, Trump himself personally sifted through it. He had all of it moved around his Florida property, including to his residence. And then when it came time to finally give it all up, Trump gave his own lawyer access to less than half of the boxes in his possession. In notes taken by one of Trump's lawyers, Trump is said to have told them, I don't want anybody looking. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. I don't want you looking through my boxes. Wouldn't it be better if we just told them we don't have anything here? I want to turn now to my panel. Uh, Chris, let me just start with you in terms of the sense of kind of childlike desperation around all of this and the degree to which Trump himself is physically burrowing through all these boxes to the degree that at one point... Walt now to his co-conspirator, co-conspirator has to ask for new box tops 
And I'll read from the indictment. On January 15th, 2022, Nauda sent Trump employee to four successive text messages. One thing he asked for was new covers for these boxes for Monday morning. Can we get new box covers before giving these to them on Monday? These to them is the papers to the DOJ. These boxes have too much writing on them. I marked too much. One can only assume that those markings were, you know, indicative of what Trump wanted done with the boxes. Well, and I think that's because, and this, this I think, comes through in, in a few points in the indictment, most clearly in the part where he's, he's attempting to sort of get back at Mark Milley by referring to a classified document, which he's waving around at the table in Bedminster. The documents are valuable to Donald Trump for precisely the reason they're valuable to the United States government, and they would be valuable to foreign governments. Yeah. They are secret information that in their secrecy contain a kind of power. Mm -hmm. That power is the thing that he wants to wield. Yeah. For whatever end, to pursue a petty grievance with Mark Milley. In the other case, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about a map. He's, he's, he's directing to a person from a super PAC politically. My hunch here is that it's a map of Afghanistan and has to do with political attacks about whose fault the end of Afghanistan yep. was, right? Yep. Um, we don't know that from the indictment, but that's my sort of, um, my best guess in, in what those examples show is that it's not it is specifically curated information that has some kind of value or power for Donald Trump mm -hmm. that he wants to keep and he wants the government not to have because he wants to use them for whatever end, whatever token he might pay, whatever vendetta he might pursue. Do we have the video a control? And you can tell me of the Wall Street Journal tour that Trump gives of his. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's play that. This, I think, is, it, let's just first say that motive actually doesn't matter in uh, an espionage oh, yeah, case, right? But this is the video where you get a sense of what a pack rat Donald Trump is, how he holds on to these important mementos. And at this point in 2015, the important mementos are there. Shaq's shoe, a World Wrestling Federation belt, various trophies. There's a lot of stuff there, Joy. Yeah. And I think it is indicative of a certain psychology and mindset. Again, the motive doesn't matter in an espionage case, but people wonder, why did this man keep all yeah. this stuff? Well, I mean, it, if you think about why he wanted to be president, right, it wasn't because he had some great passion um, for America, for the Constitution. I mean, he ran saying America is basically an S-hole country uh, under President Obama. He didn't express great patriotism or love of country. He essentially wanted to be president to aggrandize himself. Everything he's done in his career was to aggrandize himself. So it is logical to assume that he just wanted the things to further aggrandize himself. But the thing that is frightening is that Donald Trump's associations are not just meant to make him feel better, like he likes Putin because Putin says he's smart, yeah. right? Um, he, but he also likes Putin. Right. Um, he has a son in law who couldn't get a security clearance and who got two billion dollars from the Saudis. Jared had a lot of access. Jared Kushner to Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. He associates himself. You know, he had a Nazi to lunch. There are a lot of people that Donald Trump associates with because they aggrandize him, but he also associates with a lot of people who are pretty dangerous. And so I think the thing is, even when he's being silly and a goofball and, and you know, what did you call him? Gollum, that the precious is to have the documents. I mean, he's literally having them moved in little pieces, yeah. 30 here, 10 there, 15 there. And he's having not a move them, move them, move them in this weird sort of week long exodus of these documents. And then when, you know, the actual documents are searched, he's like, was anything in there? Anything bad? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's obsessed. 
but he's also dangerous. Yeah. And so it's kind of like we have to yeah. sort of balance the kind of comedy totally. that's in this, which it is quite yes. comedic, but with the fact that his associations oh, yeah. and the people he's obsessed with make him incredibly well, dangerous. And, and you use the word power, right? Because there is power. That's what we talk about, whether you're authorized to have this. That's a type of power or not. And the country is now facing this. And there will be people who are so extreme partisan that they already think he's guilty and convicted in their mind. That's not how our system works. Indeed, he's presumed innocent and he has to face facts in court. There are others who don't want to look at the facts and think that he can do no wrong. But in the main, what our test is going to be in court and as a nation is dealing with all of the evidence and facts that he was trying to wield unauthorized powers he no longer had. So we say these words, no one's above the law. We say these words, you're a citizen now. Well, what does that mean? You could be a member of the military and have access to high-grade weapons that are not otherwise available. And when you leave the military, you You, turn them back in. And I don't mean to make light of this at all. I mean it quite literally and seriously that a person who's in in a military scenario has that access to those powers, including the power to even potentially kill abroad and the day that ends it's over and yes they might have been a hero they might have been in service he was the through the electoral college duly elected commander-in-chief when that stops this country has to stop and i would liken this to the other pending probe that jack smith who we now see what happens when he acts is overseeing because there is a commonality we haven't discussed a ton tonight between the mindset of january 6th and the mindset of trying to hold on to nuclear secrets. That's right. And both of them was that he wanted to literally overthrow our democracy first on the 6th. Yeah. And second, by still doing what Chris described well, with nuclear secrets. Lawrence, the, the, the collateral damage here is not just American democracy. It's America's role in the world. Because we basically need to prove to our allies that we can keep secrets again. I mean, and, and, and in that way... What happens here is going to have geopolitical impacts. I mean, yeah, I, I strongly suspect that uh, certainly our major allies <clears throat> are actually pretty relieved when they read the details, uh, as their intelligence communities will, uh, of this uh, of this indictment, because <laughs> I, I think it, it expresses them very clearly. This is the kind of stuff that was there. They know all this stuff like there's not this probably nothing in there that our major allies wouldn't have themselves in one way or another. And they see, uh, okay, so you had this kind of renegade operation going on in Florida with, with your national security material, and you guys grabbed it. You took, you took care of it. You went to work on it. You know, you, uh, you appointed a special prosecutor, and six and a half months later, he's indicted the former president of the United States. It took him six and a half, six and a half months to master the entire case and say, here it is, and, and we did it. So it's actually, I think, a very impressive demonstration to the French, to the British, to, to the, the major allies we have uh, around the world who know that possibly some of their material was there, uh, that it, that we really handled it, you know, really thoroughly, really well. And, and to, just just to say what what Ari said about the 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 office, right? Like it's the it's the office, not the man. It's the people's documents, not you know. You can't say, well, I was president on January twentieth. I want to fire up the nuclear codes on the twenty third. <laughs> Yeah, well, you but, can't right. say can't I want to order a drone strike on February first. Listen, the, the only caveat is this man is still running for president. Well, that's yes. exactly. It is an open question about what this does to that's his candidacy. Exactly right. He wants to be back there again, yeah. which throws into that's sharp the relief these stakes. Me. This is what he's doing when he doesn't have the power. And he actually, that is actually <laughs> his stra- his legal strategy in this case is to be president again. 
and to survive it by being able to be president again and pardon himself. So now the, 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 there's an increased intensity to his need to be president. I mean, he wants to be president because he wants the power back, but now he needs to be president to survive this. Well, one of his impeachment lawyers said on our air today, and we gave him time, Robert Ray said, well, if he wins back the White House, he can just dismiss this. He'll order his new attorney general to dismiss this case in whatever procedural posture it has. Yeah, well, we, knew, we knew that before he announced his candidacy. We knew that, I mean, basically the rest of his life was going to be spent as defendant Trump, either as a criminal defendant appealing convictions or and certainly as a civil defendant, which he's going to be for the rest of his life. And, and so his next presidential campaign, now already underway, was going to be a campaign to re- resume the pardon power right. uh, for himself. Yes. He was always going to do that. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm I'm so struck by where we are at this hour tonight because 48 hours ago, you know, let's let's go to, to 48. Yeah. 48 hours ago, I was uh, 45 minutes away from conducting an interview with the most recent former member <laughs> of the Trump criminal defense team. There are now two new ones yep. uh, today. And in that interview, and Ari did an interview with the, with the same lawyer uh, before that, uh, Here's what, here's what couldn't be established from him. Did Donald Trump ever look at the contents of any of the boxes? He didn't know. Uh, <laughs> did, did, uh, you know, you know, what was the document that was in his desk? He didn't, didn't know. Every question you asked and he, and he wanted to spend a tremendous amount of time, which I understand because in, in all the exchanges with the archives before you get to what is the beginning of this criminal case. And the beginning of this criminal case is the defiance of the subpoena. And once you tried to talk to him about anything that takes place after the defiance of the subpoena, he offers you absolutely nothing. Those lawyers are offered you nothing, uh, including the possibility that Donald Trump never looked at any of these uh, boxes at all. This document today just erases, literally erases every single thing that a Trump criminal defense lawyer has said on television prior to last night. <laughs> Every single word they've said has been erased. And yet he'll probably get some new lawyers, whoever they may be, for whatever reason. The person who is has a stake in that Donald Trump re-election is Walt Nauta. We will yes. talk about him coming up. He probably is the de facto chair of a new re-elect <laughs> Donald Trump super PAC at this point. Lawrence O'Donnell, I heard you had a show yeah, I got uh, at, at 10 p.m. Yeah. on MSNBC. Yeah. So you might MSNBC. You'd think I could pronounce the name of the network correctly. So I'm going to let you go get ready for that. Show. And by the way, take take as long as you want. <laughs> when, it, when it rolls up to 10 p.m., don't feel. Any, well, I traditionally do. Don't feel any urgency. It's 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 there's nothing religious about that. 10 oh, you'll get it on time tonight, sir. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the rest of you stay seated, please. Our special coverage continues after this break. Stay with us. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? 
The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. In my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. We can't have someone in the Oval Office who doesn't understand the meaning of the word confidential or classified. We also need the best protection of classified information. No one will be above the law. Hmm. Donald Trump, the man who ran a campaign in 2016 promising to strengthen laws concerning classified information, is now, as a former president, facing 37 federal charges for his mishandling of classified materials after leaving the White House, including 31 alleged violations of the Espionage Act. Trump is being charged specifically under a part of the Espionage Act that goes against whoever willfully retains national defense information and fails to deliver it on demand to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. <clears throat> For it to be a violation of the Espionage Act, the information does not have to be classified, which is important to consider given that central to Trump's defense here is the idea that at some point somewhere he declassified the documents he had in his possession, although recently unearthed evidence on tape suggests he did no such thing. I am once again joined here by my colleagues, Joy Reid, Chris Hayes, Ari Melbourne. I want to bring back to the table the hardest man working man <laughs> in Hollywood, Andrew Weissman. Um, <clears throat> so today on Trump, Trump, on Trump Truth Social, we should just call it Trump Truth Social, Donald Trump has this to say, strange. He's talking about this picture of classified documents on the floor. Everything about the boxes was so neat, orderly, and clean. Did the FBI tip over the one box the way they staged the papers on the floor during the raid of Mar-a-Lago only to apologize after getting caught? You've pointed this out, Andrew. None of the information in the indictment is from the FBI. It's from Trump's own people. That seems deeply meaningful here. Absolutely. And, and not only is it his own people, but it's not his own people with a lot of baggage, like Michael Cohen, um, where you're putting somebody on the stand where, look, you all know what you're getting, which is a guy who speaks up to the media all the time and has admitted to committing perjury. Um, that's, that's not an easy witness to put on the stand. Here, um, let's see, you have attorneys one, two, and three. That would be his personal attorneys. You have employees one and two. The photo that we just saw was taken by an employee. Yes. That's not taken by the FBI. Yes. So Donald Trump could sit there and say, like, oh, is this taken by the FBI? No, that would be by one of his employees. Um, and there's going to be metadata to prove that. In other words, on the phone where they, sh where they get that information, it's going to say this was taken on this day at this time. You don't you can't make that stuff up. Well, well and that there's sort of connection between sort of in the Cohen case, you have Trump's lawyer um, being induced to participate in a crime. And then Donald Trump, like the Scooby-Doo villain that he is, signs the reimbursement check in the yep. Oval Office with his big magic marker. And so in that case as well, whatever you want to say about Michael Cohen, he's got receipts, too. Oh, and so in this case, you've got tapes. You've got the fall guy in this case 
Nauda doing all the box moving and there's a security uh, surveillance video. And then you've got the lawyer who's playing the Michael Cohen in this case, uh, Mr. Corcoran, who we assume is attorney number one, writing contemporaneous notes saying he's asking me to crime. Let me go ahead and take notes on all the crime he's asking me to do. And then he ends up turning him over. Yeah, by the way, Evan Corcoran, who's still representing Which Donald is Trump in a different investigation. Wait, wait, I wa- for, you know, that reminds me of the prime minister of England, where the, you know, the joke was, is she going to last longer than a cabbage? Yeah. Um, and I think with Mr. Corcoran, you can say, I mean, how long do we really think he is going to continue representing him? Donald yeah. Trump has to read this and go, you know, one of the government's star witnesses is my is, lawyer. Is, exactly. And so I don't think he's going to represent him too much longer. A cabbage looks like it has a long shelf life compared to, I, do, I want to take this moment to bring in John Brennan, the former director of the CIA and now an MSNBC national security and intelligence analyst. I'd like to bring Director Brennan into the conversation. And sir, thank you so much for joining us. I would like to know what it is like for someone who is the former director of the CIA to see these photos of these sensitive documents stored in showers, in bathrooms, splayed out on the floor. What is your reaction to that? I was looking at those photos and then reading through the indictment, I, I shuddered throughout, um, especially when I saw the classification markings on those 31 documents that were listed there and the very careless and slipshod way that these documents were left unsecured for so long that contains some of the most highly sensitive intelligence that this country has to protect our national security. I will point out that the, the indictment listed 31 documents, but according to the indictment, I think it's paragraph 8, subsection C, it says that in August of last year, pursuant to the subpoena, there were over 100 documents that were seized. So this is just a subset of documents that are listed actually in that uh, indictment. I think it's because it's the great sensitivity of the information. You can see that it's a very short synopsis of what it contains because the contents of them themselves are so revealing. Again, at the top secret level, the highest classification, the highest code words and handling uh, procedures in the U.S. government, It's that's what these documents uh, involve. Uh, I have a follow-up to that, which is there is some talk about the sensitivity of some of these documents is so uh, extraordinary. Is it your sense that the most sensitive documents aren't even accounted for in this indictment because it would be hard to litigate them? Well, well, not just, and I would defer to Andrew on that matter as far as hard to litigate them. Uh, it's going to be very hard to present them. And as I think has been talked about before, the SIPA, the, the Classified Information Procedures Act, provides the mechanisms that some of this very highly sensitive information can be shared in chambers uh, with the, the judge, with the court, with the defense attorneys. But I'm sure that the intelligence community is trying to keep as much of that information out of even those areas because of the high sensitivity of it. But what I, I think the intelligence community is going to do is to try to be as forthcoming as possible. They're not going to declassify this material because that just undercuts the argument about this whole sensitivity of this information and how much damage would be done if it's exposed and because it was unsecure. So I, I do think that uh, Jack Smith and his team are going to be working with the court to determine the exact procedures that are going to be in place, that they're going to be able to either provide classified sum- summaries um, or have the heads of the intelligence community attest to the contents of them and maybe show some of them in chambers. Uh, but I, I'm sure that they're keeping back a lot of this information because it's just so, so revealing, source revealing, sensitive technical collection systems, human networks, uh, and other types of things that it, it really would be devastating, which is one of the reasons I'm so concerned 
that this information was left there for so long. I'm sure Mar-a-Lago was on the target list for a lot of foreign intelligence services that could have easily gotten in there by, you know, masking themselves as staff or visitors or, or members of the club. And, and, and foreign intelligence services, they go in there, they're not going to steal the documents. They're going to take photos of it uh, and try to make sure that they're able to gather up as much as possible, but without leaving any fingerprints of what might have been compromised. John, this is Chris Hayes. I actually wanted to ask you about that. Let me just follow up. I mean, there were there was reporting about Mar-a-Lago as as an as a counterintelligence concern from very early on when he was the president of the United States. You you've worked a career in intelligence. Can you can you think of any analog or precedent for a for a place like Mar-a-Lago? This strange mix of public, private, porous. Uh, location with holding top secrets? <laughs> none, none whatsoever. I mean, the U.S. government has a lot of facilities throughout the United States, and a lot of those facilities, in fact, contain classified information, top secret information. But these are hardened facilities. They have uh, safes, they have uh, rooms with alarms, they frequently have guards. Uh, they will be protected because of the nature of that information. But to leave it just out like that in a, in a private club uh, and, and just strewn about in d- different rooms, ballrooms and, and bathrooms or whatever, that could be accessed easily by just a, any normal person. But sophisticated intelligence services from overseas, they have amazing amount of ways that they can find a way to get access to this facility and to glean information from, from it. So that's why I just, it's gonna be so hard for the intelligence community to determine what actually has been compromised and which of those te- technical collection systems might need to be turned off or suspended for a while or which human sources need to be exfiltrated in order to protect their lives. Because again, these things are just so, so sensitive that takes you know billions of dollars, many, many years and some real courage and bravery on the part of foreign nationals who work for us, as well as CIA officers who go out and recruit these individuals. Uh, Director, I, one more question on that front. I mean, Republicans in Congress have been sort of hiding behind the fact that the direct the ODNI assessment, the intelligence community assessment regarding the implications, the, the fallout from the, the, the retention of these documents, that assessment is not complete. And they're saying we don't know yet what damage, if any, has been done to national security. You're suggesting that that assessment is quite complicated. Is your outside guess that this is going to take quite some time longer? I I know that it's hard to sort of predict, but give us a sense of how long that can be a line of argument from opponents of this indictment. Quite frankly, I don't think the intelligence community will ever be able to determine conclusively what might have been compromised. Because there wasn't 24-7 video coverage of all these areas where the documents were held. And so you don't know what might have happened during this period of time that this was accessed. So the intelligence community is going to have to make some judgments about whether or not there are any indications that sources have been compromised or technical collection systems are now known to uh, foreign adversaries. Uh, so they're going to have to do the best that they can, but it's going to be over the course of, I think, many years to determine whether or not, in fact, uh, whether the documents that were down there were, in fact, uh, compromised uh, to the detriment of our sources and our national security. Former director of the CIA, John Brennan, with some invaluable analysis of what is happening here. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Chris Hayes, thank you, my friend, for you. hanging this long, coming back from my great pleasure. Far-flung, pla- far-flung places to be part of this moment uh, in news. Really appreciate it. We will be back with more special coverage 
of the federal indictment of former President Donald Trump right after the break. Stay with us. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. This is going to disrupt this nation because it goes to the core of equal justice for all, which is not being seen today, and we are not going to stand for it. The Republican Party has, by and large, stood behind Donald Trump as he faces today's multiple felony count indictment, as well as other looming investigations. Today, before the indictment was unsealed, Congressman Jim Jordan sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland doubling down on the House Judiciary Committee's requests for additional information regarding the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago. Other Republicans took it to another level. Representative Clay Higgins of Louisiana sent out this tweet where he used what appears to be military code words to tell Trump supporters to buckle up. An even clearer message came from Representative Andy Biggs of Arizona, who said, quote, we have now reached a war phase, eye for an eye. I am once again joined here by my colleagues, Joy Reid, Andrew Weissman, Ari Melber, and I want to welcome to the desk Stephanie Rule, host of The 11th Hour. Hey, Steph. Hi. So, you know, Trump, uh, when the Alvin Bragg indictment was looming, had sort of sent out the clarion call for his supporters to come to New York, amass, and uh, do whatever Trump supporters do, which is sometimes violence, uh, oftentimes loud. What is your expectation in all of this, given how clear-cut this indictment is, given the gravity of the information we're talking about being compromised? Is this a, a, a signal moment for Trump supporters? Should we be focused on that? Listen, Trump's hardcore base is going to be his hardcore base for the foreseeable future. What I'm looking at are where are the big, big donors going to go? Because mm. at the end of the day, the big donors basically hold their pens and hold their checkbooks and really try to figure out, they don't care about the ins and outs of politics. They want to know who's going to be in that White House, who's going to take my call and get what I need done, and who's going to keep my taxes low. So they're sitting back right now and watching this. Because when you look at what Donald Trump is doing, he's, he's in the classic Donald Trump playbook, right? The truest thing we've ever heard him say is I could shoot someone on Fifth <laughs> Avenue and get away with it. And since then, what happened? Two impeachment trials, he keeps on trucking. Right. He's in the White House continuing to co-mingle his private business with being the president. They leave the White House. He continues to raise money. He's got a voter fraud fund that we don't know where that money is spent. And while his daughter and son-in-law make more money than they have ever thought of in their lives, the question now isn't, is he going to lose his supporters? They're going to stick with him because politically he knows how to play a game. Now he's facing the law. 
and he's facing the DOJ, which is essentially the biggest, most powerful law firm in the world. (laughs) And he doesn't even have a big, powerful law firm defending him. He's got one guy from here, one guy from there, and he's looking for a third. I was just saying to Andrew, when Tom Barrack was on trial, he had two major law firms locked arms, right, with, with extraordinary lawyers there ready to roll. Trump's got a circus with, with people falling off the circus train day in and day out. And that's what's astounding to me. I mean, you're going up against the DOJ with what? Yeah, with what huge question mark. To your point, Steph, about what do I mean, there's a, there's a question about Trump's violently inclined supporters, what they do in and around Miami. There's the question of his supporters in terms of their voting habits and the donor question, the power question. Is this the moment I can't believe I'm asking this. But is this a moment where Republicans say, you know what, we do have other alternatives? Chris Christie today on CNN. This conduct is particularly awful for someone who has been president and who aspires to be president again. It's a very, very evidence filled indictment. That's as far out as anybody who is running for president for presidency in 2024 is gone on the Republican side of the aisle. I just wonder, Joy, how do you think the Ron DeSantis's of the world play this? I mean, you know, if you had an opponent, yeah. who was facing several 37 counts. Right. You'd probably talk about it on the campaign trail. And yet, open question about someone like Ron Right. And Asa Hutchinson will give him credit, too, that also kind of sounded like Chris Christie. But Chris Christie and uh, Asa Hutchinson are former federal prosecutors. They think about it in a different way. And I think Mitch McConnell's quiet here. John McConnell's quiet, quiet here. But I mean, the problem is that all the incentive structures in the Republican Party still favor Donald Trump. And so um, if you and also we should mention Chris Christie did prosecute Jared Kushner's dad. Um, so, you know, he's got some feelings and emotions that are involved here. But the, the problem for DeSantis is not only that he doesn't know how to pronounce his last name, which is also a problem, but his incentive structures are crazy. They're, they're just off the charts. On the one hand, he's the only person polling in double digits. So in a way, Trump going down is great for him. But the problem is his whole strategy has been to try to co-opt Trump's base by going even further right than Trump. Trump is mean. I'm meaner. Trump doesn't like, you know, schools. I'm going to chase teachers into, you know, the coat closet and slam the door behind them. I'm going to persecute LGBTQ people. I'm going to persecute black folks. I'm going to persecute the immigrants who actually literally fuel the economy of my state. I'm going to persecute Mickey Mouse. I am even wilder than Donald Trump. And so his the main incentive structure for him, if that's his game, is to say, I'm going to also pardon Trump. I'm also Gerald Ford. So elect me and I'll protect Trump. But Trump, you and I both know anyone who's paid attention to Trump, Trump will never humble himself to this man who used to dress his kid in a Trump onesie and who he thinks is his subordinate. (laughs) He will never humble himself to DeSantis. And that is what DeSantis Chris Christie has nothing to lose. He is being backed by rich Wall Street Republicans who want to see Donald Trump get punched in the face. And they're saying Chris Christie might be a human sacrifice here because he might not come out on top. But maybe he is. That clears Trump and it opens a path for one of these other Republicans. And then Christie could say, how about a cabinet position for me? Because, you know, Jared Kushner squished it the last time he won. Yeah. Chris Christie raising his hand for a cabinet position. Where have we seen that before? Joy Reid, my (laughs) friend. Thank you for being here. Tireless. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, sister. The rest of you guys, also tireless, also brilliant. Please stay with me. MSNBC's special coverage continues right after the break. Stay with us.
learned who will preside over the federal criminal case against former President Donald Trump, at least for now. It is Judge Aileen Cannon. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it is because this is not the first time she has been involved in this case. It was Judge Cannon who, earlier in the classified documents investigation, appointed a special master to review the thousands of documents seized from Mar-a-Lago stalling the government's investigation. A higher court later overruled her. And it will be Judge Cannon who oversees Trump's arraignment next Tuesday afternoon and determines whether to set a trial date before the 2024 election. I am joined again by my esteemed colleagues, Stephanie Rule, Andrew Weissman, and Ari Melber. And I want to welcome to the desk the great NBC senior legal correspondent, Laura Jarrett. All right, Laura and Andrew, this question is especially for you. I'll start with you, Laura. But Aileen Cannon, controversial yeah. figure mm. in judicial circles and in media circles and on just casual onlookers. How how did she get assigned this case? And truly, how much power does she have at this moment to derail it? Uh, to hear it from the public information officer down there, this is supposed to be a random assignment, despite the fact that she does have some past history with this case. There's not some related case doctrine that was a civil case, this is a criminal case. This was random. Uh, there is some issue about exactly what the pool of judges might be. Uh, I know there's some reporting out there that suggests the pool might be as many as 15. We think it actually might be a little bit smaller than that. Put that aside. The point is the Justice Department has to be feeling a little bit of heat about the fact that this is the judge that they pulled uh, and this might be the judge that they're stuck with. And this might be the judge that does have the power to either slow this case down a lot or dismiss the whole thing. Yeah. Well, and that's a dramatic amount of power, Andrew, as much as people are saying, look at this indictment. It's artful. It's it's watertight. Eileen Cannon could basically squash this whole thing. So um, she has enormous power. I do think that there are limits on could she get rid of the whole thing. That's where or she delay may, it until it becomes exactly. Untenable. In other words, if she if she's smart, which so far I have to say her rulings have not been. I mean, her rulings were reversed twice um, by a conservative court of appeals. So she has not really shown. Uh, you know, her best. Um, but it would be if she did the dramatic step of just dismissing the indictment. I mean, she'd have to you have to have a, a reason for that. And that can be appealed. So I, I'm less worried about that. There, There's another way to do it, where which is much easier and very hard to appeal, which is just delay. Yeah. Um, and so you sort of essentially accomplish the same thing that you're saying, but you just say, you know what, my calendar is really busy and we're going to have a lot of discovery and we're going to have a lot of motions and this gets put off. That could be yeah, isn't that quite exactly problematic. What Donald Trump wants? Of course, yes. of course. Delay. I mean, any defendant wants delay. There's well, a famous euphemism about, you know, for when you're a defendant, you know, an adjournment is an acquittal. Um, you know, this is because no, no defendant is really Lawyer really jokes, thinking. Right there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. I got a, I got, you, I got you, a you little laugh. Not only in the room, but around the country. Yes, exactly. This is your audience right here. Yeah, an audience of maybe one. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I do think that one of the things that the Justice Department has to be thinking now, and, and really Jack Smith, is what are their options? Um, it's one is to really drill down on how did this actually happen? Um, you know, is it purely random within the pool of judges, you know, who are in the right location and could hear a case that is at least this long? So there's reasons to think that it could have been random within, a, but within a very small denominator. Um, so that's how it happened. Um, but because of her prior rulings and just how 
um, sort of bad they were, and that's not, not me, that's the 11th Circuit twice saying that, does that give enough grounds for the government to try and uh, you know, say you should recuse yourself. That is a hard road to go down. Or do can they, they force a recusal or can they just request it? Right. I'd um, like you to recuse yourself. No. Holds nothing. Uh, yeah. You can make a motion for it. You have to have grounds for it. Uh, usually the judge themselves. But does she get to decide? Do. She gets to decide, but a chief judge also can decide. So there there. But but again, it is not something that first the government has unilateral power at all. And it's a very hard thing to do. But just to point out, the special counsel's office has proven itself to be way ahead of just about everyone. Nobody even knew they had the second grand jury open until recently. Uh, Nobody knew they had the Corcoran tapes until The New York Times uh, advanced that in the past weekend. We've learned a lot just in the past two weeks. And Andrew has pointed out uh, that they also had heavily researched the circuit split for the possible venue appeal if there were a double jeopardy claim, which is very arcane. I say it that way on purpose, which is to say they've been ahead of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. They know about her because of the history you reported, Alex. So they obviously have to have been ready for if we bring this in Florida, we could get different type of judges than you might in D.C., and they went forward that way. So they certainly have to be prepared with some plan B and C here. But it's the Corcoran notes that she might actually keep out. That's the thing to keep your eye on. And that, I think, is cause for great concern given this indictment. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We will have final thoughts on the special counsel's indictment of former President Donald Trump. Stay with us. We are back with more coverage of the federal indictment of Donald Trump. And Laura Jarrett, as we were going to break, you started talking about one of the crucial roles that the judge assigned to this case, Aileen Cannon. One of the crucial crucial things she can oversee, which is the submission of evidence, which evidence she's allowing into this. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit more about what she might want to stop from being presented as evidence in this so case. So one of the things we now have a better view of is exactly what prosecutors wanted Evan Corcoran for. We knew that they were able to pierce through the attorney-client privilege, which is viewed as sacrosanct. That's not a small thing to be able to pierce that privilege. But in order to do that, they have to show that the advice was used in furtherance of a crime. And we now understand yeah. much better than I think we did even before, even though there was so much great reporting. Obviously, Trump's attorneys want to keep that out. That is very damning evidence. And they will file motions to try to exclude it. And those motions will go to Judge Canna. And so she takes out all of the notes that he transcribed in this narrative form. And he was clearly disturbed by some of his interactions with his Current client. <laughs> yes. like, let's make it clear. Still a He's client. still a client. He may not be a client on this matter, but he is at least, as far as we last checked, still representing him as it relates to January 6th. Well, yeah. And, and Andrew Weissman, you point out, like, the, will he be on, will he be a lawyer for Donald Trump longer than a ripe peach can sit on a, a, a grocery store shelf yeah, to borrow right. a metaphor? <laughs> uh, you know, it seems like there could be an appeals process involving Judge Aileen, Can- Aileen Cannon. Yes, but to, the, to that point, she makes a crazy ruling that keeps something out. They have to appeal it. Delay. Delay. She makes another crazy ruling. They have to appeal it. And at that point, if it goes past the election in many ways, Donald Trump gets what he needs, um, which is the trial not happening before the election. And just to be clear, that's something that the American public is hurt by that. And the American public, whichever way the jury goes, is it really should have a decision on this. And frankly, even if you were Donald Trump, you would want that. You'd want to be like, you know what, I want to be cleared um, by this. And, you know, so there really should be, if you were an honest broker, 
uh, you would be trying, if you were a judge, to say, with, consistent with due process to the defendant, this should go as fast as possible because the public has such a vital interest in knowing what happened here. Well, and, and let's just also say this isn't the only investigation. Jack Smith's probe into Donald Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection is ongoing. There's, of course, Fonnie Willis, the DA down in Atlanta. There's a lot of calendaring that has to happen, presumably, in the coming months. Plus, oh, yeah, that thing, a 2024 presidential bid. Yeah, when we heard from Jack Smith today, he spoke briefly, but he made a point of saying, the defendant, for his own rights, deserves a speedy trial. Uh, and this will also be another testing point. Yes, as we've discussed, there are people who are fully bought in or minds closed. There's a lot of Americans who want to see what's happening. And if you are running for president and also trying to run out the clock rather than deal with the facts, that is a bad sign. That's separate from your legal process. But again, this isn't someone, Donald Trump, who has the nominee last time exactly won people over or won over independence or independent-minded veterans and national security folks. So he's legally presumed innocent. And if he can win in court, bless. But but running out the clock to avoid your day in court is not the right look. You had said a moment ago that, you know, Jack Smith was prepared for this, that it could be Aileen. How much of a blow is it to Jack Smith that she was, in fact, selected? Well, based, I mean, it's a great question, Stephanie. Based on the rulings we are aware of, as well as what we know about federal judges. She is probably one of the toughest, most adverse uh, federal judges you could draw for this or Jack Smith. <clears throat> but he was willing to risk it. He was clearly more willing to risk it, more worried about venue, more worried that this case would get tossed out by not filing it in the right place, that he was willing to take a gamble on Judge Cannon. Jack Smith is a gambling man. Laura Jarrett, Stephanie Rule, Andrew Weissman, and Ari Melber, thank you for being here and lending your expertise. That does it for our special coverage of the indictment of Donald Trump. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. 